Well, hi there and welcome along. It's great to have you with us again, uh, whether, wherever you happen to be and wherever you, wherever you happen to be listening from. It's just a great pleasure to have you with us. Uh, my name's Steve. I'm one of the pastors on the team here at One Hope and uh, it's my privilege to bring God's Word to you today. So let's jump right on into it. We're going to start with the Bible at Psalm 119 and the first three verses of that epic psalm with 176 verses, but the first three start like this. I'm going to read from the New Living Translation. It says, Joyful are people of integrity who follow the instructions of the Lord. Joyful are those who obey His laws and search for Him with all their hearts. They do not compromise with evil and they walk only in His paths. I mean, what that's what that uh, few verses of Psalm 119 there are telling us is that if we are uh, firstly see God in His Word and see God in prayer, then we can expect to be uh, joyful, but also more than that, we're not going to compromise with evil and we're only going to walk in God's paths. And so it's with that thought in mind uh, today, I want to introduce to you the uh, topic of today and it's entitled The Cost of Compromise. We're still in the life of David. In fact, we're looking not so much at David, but more toward his son today, the, the son of the man who in fact penned that psalm, who was King David, of course, in Psalm 119. And we're going to look at his life specifically and uh, of course, Solomon's reign was one of stark contrast from magnificent highs to quite devastating lows, in fact, from moments of great achievement and to the glory of God to moments of intense compromise and departure from the will of God. Of course, we'll do well to remember Solomon's achievements, his influence and his power and his wisdom that God gifted him with. But also, we shouldn't forget how his life spiralled downwards and as a result of those compromises that he made along the way. And of course, we can learn some key things from uh, studying Solomon's life and apply that to our own lives. Because in all likelihood, we're never going to achieve the highs that Solomon achieved, nor necessarily, I trust, uh, end up in some of the lows that he went to. Um, but if only we'll heed those warning signs uh, and extract those lessons that emerge from Solomon's life and assess the cost of compromise. Of course, compromise can be good uh, if two parties come together and it means uh, giving up some of your liberties or freedoms or deferring to the other in order to find some common ground that uh, we can agree on, get an equitable outcome for those who are actually negotiating. Equally, compromise can be bad uh, if we get to that point where we actually give up on uh, our standards, those things that we know to be true and we make concessions or excuses for the way in which we're, uh, we're acting, our poor behaviour, of course, that will have an impact that's negative on other people. And today we're going to see what happens when someone chooses the way of a bad compromise, and that is in Solomon, we find in his story. Because in the light of God's clear teachings, he made some conscious choices to follow after a way of the world, and the result of that was disastrous, both for Solomon and his family, and for the, in fact, for the whole nation of Israel. But before we get to that, Let's consider, first of all, the great prosperity that Solomon enjoyed because it was an incredible time for both him as a king and for the entire nation of Israel. Let's read from 1 Kings chapter 10 because this reflects on the greatness of Solomon. It said, Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones and cedar as plentiful as sycamore fig trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans. 
well, you might say good on him. You know, I mean, he made the most of his success and his, uh, his opportunity. He cashed in on that. But the problem is, despite all that great description we heard of his, his prosperity, it was actually against what God had previously warned when he said when, when Israel wanted to take on a king. In Deuteronomy 17, God had told them that when they had a king, he was not to multiply horses, nor multiply wives, nor multiply silver or gold. Instead, this is what it says in Deuteronomy 17, verses 19 to 10, that he was to revere the Lord, his God, and follow carefully all the words of the law, and not consider himself better than his fellow Israelites and turn from the law to the right or to the left. Then he and his descendants would reign a long time over his kingdom in Israel. That was what God's plan was not to accumulate horses and wives and silver and gold and all of the things which in fact he did do. But just as we read that Solomon was doing the exact opposite of this, you know, it's not because he didn't know the word of God, in fact he did. But what we're seeing with this amassing of these huge quantities of worldly goods was just the natural outworking of his allegiances shifting, not from his reliance on God but to his riches and his power. Let's read on from that passage I just read from 1 Kings chapter 10 because then it rolls into chapter 11 and starting there at verse 1. And this is what it says. King Solomon, however, you always got to watch those howevers in the Bible when we get to those. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians and Hittites, essentially all the nations around about Israel. And they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. See, intermarrying with the foreign nations around them was actually expressly prohibited by God. In Deuteronomy 7, God laid that out very clearly and he gave them the reason why they weren't to intermarry. And it was that they these uh, women that they married from these other nations would actually turn their hearts after following God and turn towards following idols or the gods that was of the surrounding nations. And it says when that happened, God said when that happens, it says there in Deuteronomy 7, the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. So there were going to be major implications from turning from God toward these other gods who so-called gods from the other nations. So God knew that his people would be led astray. And that their hearts would be turned away from the Lord and they'd be tempted to serve these foreign gods who were no gods at all. Which, of course, then things weren't going to go well for them. God was going to bring a judgment on them. His anger would be aroused against them and he would destroy them. So, and it would ultimately result in the demise of the nation. But let's read on from 1 Kings 11, moving now to um, verse 2. It says, Nevertheless... Despite that warning, nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them, that is, his foreign wives, those women that he loved. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. Can you believe that, man? And his wives led him astray. I mean, fancy that. Who would have thought? Who would have guessed? And as Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. I mean, why are we not surprised? I mean, he got himself all compromised there. Uh, when we flagrantly disobey one of God's very, very clear prohibitions in the word, the consequences is this drift into compromise and a growing separation from God. Let's read from verse 5 as we follow on. 
So he, that Solomon, followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Moloch, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. I mean, twice now it says that he did not follow the Lord as David his father had done. You know, David is described in the word of God as a man after God's own heart. And God, if anything would describe him, is that David had a devoted heart. By contrast, Solomon, his son, had a divided heart. And so it was that it's not that he didn't follow the Lord uh, at all. He just didn't follow him completely. And therein lies the compromise. But then again, who has done that uh, anyway? You know, I mean, who does perfectly follow after God? I mean, all of us have compromised in some way, have we not? I mean, Solomon got some things right after all. I mean, you think of some of the legacy. I mean, you think about last week when we spoke of the temple that he built and of his palace and he ushered in a, an unprecedented time of prosperity and of peace for the nation of Israel. More than that, I mean, he's certainly credited with the Song of Solomon, a Song of Songs, you may know it, certainly uh, many of the Proverbs and quite possibly and most likely also the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, certainly there were worse kings in both Israel and Judah. And Solomon was probably like most of us. You know, he was good, but not necessarily great. He still had a few problem areas he was working on. He was sure a follower of God. He just had a bit of a struggle in a few areas. I mean, Solomon started out well, as we just heard. Remember, his first act as king was to, uh, when God said to ask what he wanted, he, he said, would you give me a discerning heart? He wanted to have wisdom. And God was pleased with that and he said, well, not only will I give you a discerning heart, but I'll also bless you with riches and with honour. And so it was that God did bless him and uh, out, it was out of that abundance of that blessing that we read before, the accumulation of that great wealth. And you might argue, well, if God knew that was going to spoil him and, uh, you know, and he didn't actually ask for it, remember, he actually asked for wisdom and God chose to give it to him. I mean, why would he give it to him if he knew that it was going to actually spoil him and lead him astray? But you see, it wasn't the stuff itself that led Solomon astray and led him down that wrong path. In fact, for us, it might not be material wealth at all that also might lead us astray. And I would say that for Solomon, it was more the symptom than it was the cause of his straying. As we heard before, things went pear-shaped for Solomon because he loved many foreign women and his heart was turned to follow other gods. So the problem with Solomon, as I said, he had a divided heart. His loyalties were spread every which way and it, it, it led him to compromising of God's revealed purpose and it actually opened the door for his demise. Let's keep going on in 1 Kings 11 as we read through this passage today. From verse 7, it says, On a hill east of Jerusalem, that would be the Mount of Olives, you know, the place where Jesus ascended to heaven after his resurrection. It says, On a hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab. It's not going well here. And Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites, he did the same for all his foreign wives, all 700, who burned incense and offered sacrifices to their god. And so it was here that Solomon set up worship centres to Ashtoreth, to Chemosh and to Molech. All of them uh, were compromised and, and, and comprised of uh, shrine prostitution, human sacrifices, in some cases, child sacrifices. I mean, at the heart, these things were evil and they were demonically inspired. And so this was a really big deal. And it's the very nub of the issue when it comes to Solomon's compromise. So let's read on. 
because now we're going to get into the consequences of those decisions made by Solomon. From verse 9 of chapter 11 of 1 Kings. It says, The Lord became angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. And so the Lord said to Solomon, Since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. So God was angry with Solomon. He was displeased and he was about to tear the kingdom away from him. And that was the cost of his compromise. See, because the king was both the embodiment and the representative of the people. Everything that he was, was, uh, was representative of the whole nation. And so his divided heart was about to lead to a divided kingdom. And God was showing his people through Solomon that that whole nation, in fact, had turned aside because in following after their king's lead, they were also turning away to follow other idols. And that was the demise, not only of the royal family, but that was the physical outworking of the demise of the entire nation in the years that followed. It was really in stark contrast to what we read before in Deuteronomy 17, which was when God had declared about the king that he was to revere God and he was to carefully follow his law and he was not to turn to the right nor the left because if they were to do those very things, then God uh, would actually um, uh, cause their reign to come to an end. And so it was that Solomon's reign was about to come to an end and, and in fact, that instead of blessing coming to the nation, they were about to come to ruin. And sadly, we see leaders not just in the church but also in, uh, in general life uh, who at times have compromised and led to their demise and their downfall. It's things that started out in small ways, small choices that they made, which ultimately led them to lose, in some cases, their ministries, their reputations, their influence, and ultimately uh, ended up on the fringes of society. And I mean, the, the pain and the hurt caused by that has been immense. But look, I certainly don't want to be the first to cast a stone because if anything would come out of today, in fact, why the Bible is there is to warn us and to teach us from these examples we read so that we might make a different set of decisions, that we can recognise those early uh, signs of temptation and make, a, a, as I say, different, a different call while, before it's too late. And that's why it's important that we study Solomon's life because we can glean from that situation and uh, change our ways lest our kingdoms be torn away from us and be given to someone else. So let's have a look at what actually happened to Solomon. What were the chain of events that followed on from this declaration from God? Well, the first thing that we're told is this, and it's in verse 14 of chapter 11. It says, The Lord raised up against Solomon an adversary, Hadad the Edomite. Now, Hadad was a boy back in the day when Israelite came in and attacked that whole region of Edom and uh, decimated that area. And I'm sure Hadad was a guy that actually had a bit of a score to settle. And so it was that he was starting to exact revenge. He saw an opportunity here to come against him. And so he became an adversary of Solomon. But not only that, in the, the neighbouring uh, area to Edom, which is Aram, there, uh, when David was king, and a war sorry, before he was a king, but he was a warrior under Saul's reign, he went in and they devastated that whole region around Aram. Aram. And so it was that there's this guy called Reason. Now, Reason was uh, a, a, a contemporary of Hadad, and he also raised up uh, as an adversary. And it says this about him in verse 25. Reason 
was Israel's adversary as long as Solomon lived, adding to the trouble caused by Hadad. So Rezon ruled in Aram and was hostile toward Israel. So now we've got Hadad and we've got Rezon in two regions close by Israel starting to rise up. But if that wasn't enough, even within your own ranks, Jeroboam, who's a, a man of immense influence, in fact, so much so that Solomon had appointed him in charge of all of the labor force. Now, Jeroboam was a man who also rose up uh, in, in opposition to, um, to Solomon. And so it was that uh, this man with a real great track record uh, starts to rise up, a, a man of great influence. And this is what it says. Jeroboam one day was going about his business. He's met by the prophet Ahijah. Now, Ahijah comes to him and he actually does this really strange thing. He said, and speaking of that, it says the two of them, that's Jeroboam and Ahijah, they were alone out in the country and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and he tore it into 12 pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, take 10 pieces for yourselves, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you 10 tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen, out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I'll do this, this is the reason, because they have forsaken me and worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Molech, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, Solomon's father, did. See, what Ahijah was showing Jeroboam was that God was about to tear apart the kingdom of Israel. Give 10 tribes to Jeroboam, leaving just one tribe for the descendants of Solomon, and that was, of course, Judah, the southern kingdom. Not because Solomon deserved it, but because God was faithful to his promise to David, his commitment that he made. In fact, in verse 36, he goes on to say this, I will give one tribe to his son, that, uh, so that, that's Solomon's son, Rehoboam, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put my name. See, God is faithful to his covenant, his commitments, and so it is. Uh, you know, we, it says in Scripture, you know, God is faithful even when we are faithless. And, and, and so it is that God is, is honouring the commitment that he'd previously made. Now, as it turns out, between the northern kingdom, the ten tribes, and the southern kingdom of Judah, there was just ongoing conflict and civil war. They coexisted for around two centuries. It was a, a very... Um, a tense sort of existence between the two of them. In fact, the last war left the northern kingdom decimated and ultimately the Assyrians were able to move in on a greatly weakened northern kingdom in around 723 BC, in which case they basically, uh, a conflict that lasted around 20 years, uh, basically destroyed the northern kingdom. But the rot had really set in from Solomon right back uh, at the time and ultimately played out here. And it was set a pattern for the generations that followed and ultimately led to God's judgment on the northern kingdom. But 135 years later, of course, the Babylonians come in and attack the southern kingdom of Judah. And as had been foretold by many of the prophets for centuries before or decades before. And so Judah was wiped out and large swathes of its population were deported or to exile in Babylon. And, and uh, Solomon's temple that we read about last week was completely destroyed. Well, let's just go back to Solomon himself. Because this man, with all his greatness and his influence, rather than finishing his life on a high note, his life basically ends with a bit of a dull thud. Uh, because this is what it records uh, about his death at the end of his life. It just says, Solomon reigned in Jerusalem over all Israel 40 years. Then he rested with his ancestors and was buried in the city of David, his father. And Rehoboam, his son, succeeded him as king. Yeah, you know, it was a 
Pretty ordinary ending to a rather extraordinary life, really. But the biggest reason for that, and just the fact that he just essentially petered out into nothingness, was that he's had this divided loyalty. See, God, Solomon loved God with part of his heart, but not all of his heart. In fact, what he did is he divided up the rest of his heart into 700 pieces and gave it to his idol-worshipping wives from these foreign nations. And that was the cost of compromise. So, what lessons can we take out of all of this? I mean, it's nice to go through and look at this as a story in the Bible, but there are three things I want to draw out of this that I think are key lessons that we can take from it. And first of this is that worldliness, it's hard to get my tongue around, worldliness leads to worthlessness. See, earlier, earlier in his reign, Solomon was a man of immense influence and he had everything. He threw it away, as I said before, riches, wisdom, influence, uh, power. You know, built God's temple, did all these great things, wrote lots of the Bible. But he's also, as I said, credited with uh, writing Ecclesiastes potentially. And if that's the case, then really Ecclesiastes is, is a form of confession. It's almost a reflection on a life of waste, wasted opportunity. In Ecclesiastes 2, it records these words. It says, I said in my heart, and assuming this is Solomon, come now, I'll test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. See, Solomon realized on reflection on the other side of all of this folly that actually it was almost pointless and meaningless and worthless. You really, what he's saying is don't turn your back on God and honor the commitment you've made to your wife in case he had 700 in his case. And so the point is that, is that worldliness leads to worthlessness. So it doesn't matter how much you achieve, how, much, how smart you are, how famous you are, how influential you might be, how much wealth you accumulate. If you sell your soul and compromise your relationship with God, then it's all for naught. Jesus put it this way in Mark 16 and Matthew rather 16 and 26, when he says, What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? And the question, answer to that question is obvious. It's no good at all. It's worthless. In fact, it said it's like salt that's lost its saltiness or its savour. It's good for nothing to be thrown out and trodden underfoot by men. So we need to keep the main thing the main thing, which Solomon tells, tells us when he gets to the end of Ecclesiastes in chapter 12, this. He says, here it is. Here's the conclusion of the matter. And he says, now all has been heard. This is verse 13. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. I mean, there's the game right there, right? See, Solomon had all the theory. He knew what he needed to do. He had the word of God. He understood it, but he lost his way through compromise. And, and so we need to uh, avoid that by doing the very thing that he says here, fear God and keep his commandments. The second point or the second key takeaway I want to make from out of this is that sin doesn't just affect you. Sin doesn't just affect you. In fact, it impacts generations. See, compromise clouds our judgment. We fool ourselves into thinking, well, you know, my sin's not really that big a deal. Or, yeah, I might sneak a little look at porn now and again, or I might tell a few lies here and there. I mean, you know, whatever. I mean, it's, it's not that big a thing. Well, you know, you might be saying, look, I've still got my job. I go to church. You know, it's, things are pretty good. My kids are here, my house, I pay my bills. I mean, what's the issue? But see, you're really on a slippery slope when you're in that space. Because sin always has consequences, and not just to you. See, remember the words of Paul in Galatians 6, verse 7 and 8, where he says this, Do not be deceived, God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. See, everything we do, whether good or bad, 
has consequences. Now, if you think that your sin is just a personal matter, I'd like to say, suggest today that it's actually not because it impacts everything and everyone around you. It affects your relationships, it affects your ability to love others, and perhaps more importantly, it affects your ability to be able to relate to God. And when that happens, when sin is there and compromise begins to shape our life, we deceive ourselves into thinking that God has actually distanced himself from us, which is not the case. We've distanced ourselves from him. And so our prayer life and our worship gets affected and our spiritual edge gets lost and we end up listening to the wrong voices and we're easily deceived and we, we lose our witness to the glory of God and we, we make decisions that now appeal to our flesh and we excuse our wrongs and we blame others and all of these things have to go pear-shaped on us and ultimately it blocks God's blessings from flowing through to us. And if that weren't enough, the story of Solomon itself teaches us today that that um, the, many of the sins in his case uh, were a repeat of what his father had done. I mean, David became a murderer and an adulterer. So did Solomon. And so did many of his children that followed after him. They all repeat the process, the sin down through the generations. And in Solomon's case, you know, life was pretty good. He had money and power and influence, as I've said. He had unprecedented peace. But while much of the cons- many of the consequences of sin bypassed him directly, they certainly affected his children and many of them died horrible deaths in famine and war and, uh, and, and Israel was completely destroyed because of the sin of Solomon that set in from the beginning. So sin does affect our generations. If you're an alcoholic, you're more, your children are more likely to be prone to alcoholism. If you're abusive, then maybe your children will be more prone to be abusive or in fact end up in abusive relationships. If you reject Jesus and you walk away from him, then your children are much more likely to do the same. And we call this generational sin. And it's when parents' sin affects the children and the grandchildren. And the only way to break that, the only way to break that is to come back to Jesus in repentance and turn your life over to him, which leads really to the third point that I want to bring out of today. And that's this, that repentance leaves a legacy. Repentance leaves a legacy. See, Solomon's sin and his failures as both a husband and a father totally devastated and destroyed everyone around him. But at the end of his life, as we saw in Ecclesiastes 12, when he reflects back on that, he repents of his sin and he essentially tries to get his life right back with God. And so God still honoured Solomon's legacy. He didn't excuse his sin. There were still consequences, of course, which we've been reading all about today. But remember this, a thousand years on from the life of Solomon... His first wife, Abishag, which was probably the woman he loved the most and the one of which he wrote the Song of Solomon about. To them was born, down through the lineage of that, the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who would come from God and reverse that curse and make a way for the generational sin to be broken and to redeem the world. And so some of you, some of you would be the first in your family line to follow Jesus. And some of you are the first ones to overcome an addiction. Some of you are the first ones to attend church, to worship God and to serve on a Sunday. Well, I know I am. And if you are, well done. Good decision. And if that's you, you're in the business of making a change. You're changing the destiny, not just for your life, but for all those that would follow after you. See, from this point forward, your life should be now Christ-centered and God-honoring and, and generation-changing you to leave a legacy for those that would follow from this day forward. Well, perhaps you're one who stands on the shoulders of generations of Christians that have gone before you and it's their legacy that you've inherited. I mean, what an enormous privilege that is. 
And as it is with you, the first generation believers, your job also is to be Christ-centred and God-honouring and generation-changing and for you to leave a legacy as well. Because as we've seen from Solomon's life, it's so easy to take your Christian heritage for granted like he did and not truly value what you've received. You know, perhaps you who've been a Christian for, through, handed down through you through the generations need to work all that harder to preserve that tradition, pass on that godly heritage to the generations that follow and that's not just to your natural children. How about turning your attention toward our young adults, our youth, our kids' ministry, and looking to how you might bless them? Or how about a brand new Christian, someone, a babe in Christ, who's just on the pathway towards discipleship? You've got so much that you can give to them to get alongside them and teach them how to live for Jesus. That's the legacy that you could and should leave for those that follow you. So... As we look at Solomon's compromise, even though it was significant, it didn't have to define and it doesn't define his life entirely. He, like us, was far from perfect. We failed just as he failed. And while he might not have been quite as quick to repent as his dad did, uh, David, he did reflect on his life, as I've said, in Ecclesiastes. And as he looked back, he looks at it as all futility, a vanity, a chasing after the wind. And it's clear that he'd learned his lesson, albeit the hard way. And so, as we say, he's come to that point where despite his failures and his shortcomings, Solomon experienced the grace of God. Now, maybe you've come to that place in your life where you recognise that your life has fallen short of God's glory or you compromised along the way. Maybe you're experiencing the consequences of those poor decisions. Somehow it might be affecting your relationship with God. Maybe your prayer life is a bit cold or when you pick up the Bible, it seems pretty dry and and hard going or God seems distant. You've lost your spiritual edge. Well, Solomon teaches us this. If we look from today, it's this, is that it's never, ever too late to recognise that and to repent and turn aside from straying from God and turn our life. That's what repentance is, essentially a decision to turn around and turn our lives in a different direction. And if you've never known God's forgiveness and his grace, then perhaps like Solomon, you too might today start out and recognise that compromise and that sin because the good news is that Jesus himself, God's only son, was sent to us to redeem us, to take our sin upon his own body and to pay the price on your behalf so that you can go free. He's going to restore and he can encourage you if you'll surrender your life to him today. He'll forgive you if you'll only acknowledge that sin and that compromise before him. So Peter declared in Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, he said these words, Repent and be baptised every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit. I mean, that's fantastic news, isn't it? All we need to do is repent and be baptised and turn our lives over in the name of Jesus. We'll receive that gift of God's forgiveness, the gift of the Holy Spirit coming to us. See, rather than us focusing on the cost of compromise, we are far better off to focus in on the price of redemption. To think about the price that Jesus paid to redeem our life. To be our atoning sacrifice, that he bore our sin in his body. And in exchange, he wants to pour out his Holy Spirit upon us, as we've just read from Acts. As you surrender your life to him. So today, my question is, are you ready to receive that amazing grace and his abiding presence of his Holy Spirit? And if that's you, and today you recognise that you've fallen short of God's glory, and we all have, then I would invite you to pray this prayer with me as we conclude today. Uh, Let's 
pray a prayer of surrender to Jesus together. Even if you're a Christian, you've been there many times before. Pray it again. It's always good to refresh your commitment to Jesus. Let's pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your word, for the lesson that you provide from that. As we look to the life of Solomon, we understand, Lord, a life of compromise that has consequences. But we also learn from him that uh, there is an opportunity to repent and to surrender again. And so today, God, we recognise that all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, no, not one. But we're so grateful that the righteous one, the Lord Jesus Christ, paid a price shedding his blood that we can be forgiven. And so today, Lord, in your hearing, I surrender my life to you afresh. I give over myself to serving you. I pray that your spirit, God, would come to me. I acknowledge Jesus as my Lord. And Father, from this point forward, I choose to follow you. Strengthen me and help me, Lord, that I will not compromise any longer, but I will live my life entirely for you and for your glory. For I ask this in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Thanks so much for listening. It's great to have you along. Uh, hopefully we'll see you again soon. Matt's back on deck next week, so you can look forward to that. So thanks very much. It's been a real pleasure. Bless you all.